This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Juliana Lamy is a Haitian writer from South Florida. She received her bachelor's degree in history and literature from Harvard University and is currently pursuing a master's in creative writing at the Iowa Writers' Workshop. Her forthcoming short story collection, titled You Were Watching from the Sand, deploys elements of speculative fiction to describe poignant and sometimes magical moments in the lives of Haitians. It's always lyrical and alternatingly humorous, tender, playful, and devastating. To kick us off, I'd like to read a short excerpt from the collection's titular story. You were born on one of those days where the sky won't break apart for the rain, where the sky won't break apart for the sun. You were born on one of those days where everybody's bone tired, where sleep drags through them and replaces the blood. And all the branches of exhaustion the river empty out inside their stomachs when everybody has a lake with them, right under the heaven of their ribs. Those days where you could drown if you stayed too long inside yourself. Welcome, Juliana. Thank you for talking with me today. Hi, thank you for having me. So to get us started, I'd like you to just tell the listeners a bit about yourself as a writer, who and what has inspired or influenced you, and how have those influences and inspirations helped to shape this collection? Yeah, um, so I've been writing basically since I could hold a pencil with my little hands. Um, But I think that I started uh, seriously writing um, and considering fiction about four years ago when I was still an undergrad. Um, At that time, I was reading um, a lot of Toni Morrison more seriously. I was reading um, a lot of Viet Thanh Nguyen. When um, The Sympathizer came out, I was uh, very, very obsessed. Um, And I was also thinking a little bit more deeply about um, Haitian myth and Haitian folklore. Um, now with Toni Morrison and Viet Thanh Nguyen, um, I think that it's sort of um, reading their reading their sort of um, their novels kind of gave me the the permission to kind of pursue the like the lyrical exuberance that I that I've always really really admired. Um, so that's sort of like what I'm I'm striving to in a lot of my writing now. Um, and then just like the considerations of Haitian myth kind of um, kind of really influenced the um, I would say particularly the the voices of a lot of um, the stories that I write, um, as well as um, just sort of the sort of like the, I guess, like the particular cadences. Um, And I think that um, currently I'm also working a lot more with um, actual um, parts of Haitian language. So um, in some of the the stories in this collection um, and some of the stories that I'm working on um, outside of this collection, there are more sort of moments where um, there are Haitian words that are um, untranslated. But it's sort of like that that combination of um, lyrical exuberance that I've kind of um, kind of like taken um, from from a lot of um, 
from much of the from much of the sympathizer, much of um, um, Tan Wen's work, um, and then pretty much all of Toni Morrison's um, Ouvroir has been uh, just a huge huge influence on me as well. That's funny. Viet Tan Wen was actually he was at uh, he spoke um, alongside Natasha Trethaway for my graduate program just oh last week or the week before. Oh my god! Um, yeah, it was really cool. And he actually the so they uh, the two of them had a, a discussion and, and sort of inspired this next question. So thank you so much <laughs> for the perfect lead in. Um, so I'm curious if you can describe you know how did you come to write short fiction rather than say a novel or a poetry mm. collection? Why short fiction? Yeah, so I, um, let me just preface this question by saying that I've always wanted to be a poet. Um, it's one of like my, like my most like deeply kept secrets because I'm in a fiction program. Um, but I think that I've always sort of like admired just like the kind of just phenomenal distillation of meaning that poetry relies on um, and just sort of like that attention to form. Um, I think that sort of... Um, even now, currently, I'm still kind of intimidated by um, that process of distillation. Um, but I really, really love um, sort of the, um, I really, really love sort of like the the space that fiction offers me um, and sort of like pursuing um, the interest that I have, particularly in language um, and just sort of like the the flexibility of narrative. Um, I think that um, I, I have tried to, to write poetry. I don't think I've ever finished a poem. Um, I think the... the <laughs> The way that I would describe it is that I move a lot better um, in fiction um, in sort of like that fictive space. There's just like, there's so much, there's so much of that space. Um, and then too, I think that particularly um, the sort of like my decision to focus on short fiction for now rather than the novel um, is because I'm, I, I think that I wasn't, um, I'm not really sort of ready for the expansiveness that the novel um, requires, but also I have, um, I think that I uh, I have a kind of a very uh, short uh, attention span when it comes to um, story premises right now. So um, sort of like as soon as I finish or as soon as I come up with um, a story premise, um, I'm already thinking of another story premise that's kind of like hanging on to the previous one. And I kind of like I want to start it immediately. Um, so I think that for now, this like short fiction is like the, the perfect kind of um, the perfect avenue for me. Um but yes, and, and additionally, I think that also a lot of the, the stories that I that I write, um, I like to describe it as sort of like every single story that I write has um, a series of kind of little doors that lead to other stories. So um, even though they're not, um, the stories in this collection are not connected to one another um, in a literal like narrative sense, um, they are kind of like kind of connected kind of connected to each other in the sense that um, they've inspired each other. Um, and um, hopefully you can sort of see the, the influence that they've each had on each other in this collection, the way that they cohere. I definitely think you can. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think they can. Wonderful. <laughs> um, so I wanted to talk with you about the way that you use language, because I think it's really striking and that it's it's beautiful. Um, at times it's really playful. At times it's it's quite blunt and sort of haunting. And I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about how you think of language as a writer and how you deploy language in this collection. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I love talking about language and fiction. It can go on, but, um, I think that for me particularly, um, my, my entry point into any story, um, 
is always sonics, just sort of like the the sound of things, how things sound. I think that is sort of um, what allows me um, access into like the the sensory landscape of a story. Um, So in order for me to sort of like get to the visuals of a story, in order for me to get to um, like the smells of a story or anything um, tactile in a story, it has to start with sound. Um, Just sort of like how... um, how do the characters in this piece speak? Um, sort of how um, how does how does the sound of like water running in the story sound? Um, so I think that I'm I'm particularly thinking of that, and also I think that um, in all of these stories, I, I really try to kind of like recreate the the cadence of um, Haitian Creole, particularly um, kind of like the way that um, I'm trying to to sort of put this into words, but sort of the um, the way that there's always just kind of like this like very distinct wittiness running through every phrase um, in Haitian Creole, I'm, I'm trying to kind of recreate that in a lot of these stories. Um, sort of like that, like that quickness of mind and quickness of language I'm, I'm trying to sort of recreate. So that's, those are sort of like some of the ways that I'm thinking of language in this collection. Thank you. Um, so the other thing I wanted to talk about uh, that you use sort of in this collection is You know, I don't think all of the stories are using speculative elements, but certainly many of them are. And so I was wondering if you could sort of describe, you know, what is it about speculative fiction or the sort of um, what that genre or super genre allows that you were interested in using? And I know when we talked uh, previously before the interview, we talked about uh, magical realism. So maybe if you could Mm -hmm. kind of walk us through like how you think of magical realism or, or speculative fiction more broadly and why it is that you chose to deploy elements of those in your writing. Yeah, so um, magical realism. So I, um, it's a very, very long tradition, and obviously, I'm not, um, I'm not about to say anything um, too original. But I think that um, for me, sort of like the um, kind of like what I've um, kind of distilled from a lot of the definitions that I've heard of mag- magical realism and the way that I've seen it operating in a lot of my favorite novels is that um, I really, really, really like the definition of that term that talks about. Um, how reality has to accommodate the fantastical. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's sort of like you, um, sort of the the fantastical is um, is entering into these these realms that we're already used to, um, and sort of like you see um, kind of reality having to to meld around um, around that. Um, so I think that um, first and foremost, in any speculative piece that I'm um, that I'm writing, the speculative ele- element is always. Um, is always the most significant part. It's, it's what I start with. Um, and then also in terms of sort of what um, speculative fiction allows me to do, um, I think that I was thinking about this uh, really deeply um, when I took a fiction workshop with Kevin Brockmeyer, who I really, really admire. Um, and he, so in that workshop, we were um, obviously thinking a lot about, you know, what speculative fiction allows us to do. Um, and particularly the way that speculative fiction allows for um, kind of like this emotional expansiveness um, and sort of like the the way that um, speculative fiction allows for for emotional reactions to be kind of actualized and literalized on the page. Um, so um, instead of sort of, you know, just having a character who's angry, you have um, a character who's um, so angry that they like that they transform into um, into, you know, a volcano or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just I'm just really, really I just love that. Um, that just sort of like uh, that pursuit of the literal in service of the emotional. I've, al- I've always really, yeah, I'm, I'm still like stunned by it. I love it. That's such a great, yeah, such a great way of putting it. I just love that. 
Um, and I think it leads really perfectly into my next question, which is obviously you're using, you're sort of playing on myths throughout the collection. And so I wonder like if you could talk about what kinds of myths inspire you or inform your work, what is important about myth sort of generally to you and also in your writing? Yes. Um, so I don't know if this is cringy to say, but I am of the Percy Jackson generation. So um, like, I don't think that's cringy. Then, <laughs> so I, I very like um, just been raised in this like crucible of um, of like Greek myth obsession, um, and I um, I'm just I'm I've always just been very very fascinated by uh, by Greek myth. I think that um, particularly. One of the stories in this collection, Belly, um, was supposed to, is it's is a, a loose retelling of the Pygmalion myth. Um, so I think that um, yeah, so so Greek mythology um, figures very kind of prominently. I think because it's it's one of the it's one of the first kind of like um, one of the first traditions of myth that I was uh, that I consciously remember being exposed to. Um, but it's obviously not the first. So um, so. Ha- you know, um, Haitian folklore has like a, a very kind of extensive um, history of myth um, and of um, those sorts of stories. So I think that um, even though I've, I've kind of like always been um, exposed to um, those myths, it, it was kind of a um, as I got older, I kind of had to to return um, to to the the stories that I, I had been hearing all of my life. I, I never, I don't think I ever kind of um, fully internalized them as um, as as myth on par with um, Greek mythology, unfortunately, until I got much, much older. Um, so, um, so yeah, we have a lot of, um, and this is true of a lot of kind of um, Afrocentric, um, African descended uh, uh, cultures, but a lot of our, our myths center around um, trickery um, and sort of like um, getting one over on, um, on other people. So I think that um, a lot of sort of like that, um, that like, those moments of like sleight of hand or trickery or, um, um, or interacting with, with people in that way. Um, I, I think that I've been sort of, uh, I think that I've been sort of more incorporating those elements of myth into, um, into my work as well. Um, but yeah. I think that, um, yeah, that sort of trickster character runs through quite a few of the stories and it's so delightful to read. Um, I just love it. Um, <clears throat> I also wanted to talk about the importance of time in your writing, because I noticed you're doing some really interesting things with time. So for example, in the story, Eli, your narrator protagonist is constantly playing with the meaning of time, linking the present and the past, the moment uh, sort of unfolding with the memory. Um, And so I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about what time means for you in your writing and how you're interested in playing with time in the way that you do. Yeah, so... um... Yeah, so I think that I've always been really, really interested in the um, simultaneity of moments, so like occurrences happening at um, exactly the same time. I think that I've always been kind of um, interested in a very like non-scientific way in quantum physics, um, kind of like a um, like a like a like a leisurely interest more. Um, so. Yeah, so that sort of idea of things happening um, constantly at the same time, um, and I've I've always been sort of um, interested in the way that um, that memory kind of um, rests inside of, of people and sort of influences are um, are present. Um, so I think that I, I try to recreate a lot of that um, in my stories and in the page. I think that um, in a lot of um, 
this isn't really true of, uh, of this collection, but I think that um, in my experience of writing now, um, I have these these very, very kind of extended moments of memory, very extended moments of, of backstory. Um, and I think that it's, it's kind Are of a, there? it's, oh, sorry, can you hear me? Sorry, you, you sort of cut out. So if you wouldn't mind just going back just a beat. Oh, yes. Um, so in my current uh, writing outside of this collection, I've had much more of a focus on um, backstory and uh, sort of extended moments of memory, um, which has kind of been um, a nightmare for people who are in workshop with me, sort of like trying to like pare down <laughs> those moments. But the, the thing is that what's happening in my mind is that um, these moments of memory, they kind of feel they are present tense to me. Um, I think that uh, like currently I write a lot of these like past tense moments um, in present tense. Um, I write, I write a lot in present tense in general, but um, memory particularly has been um, much more of a present tense endeavor for me. And I think that um, it, it started particularly with this collection um, with the way that I kind of like, I want um, I want moments in the past and moments in the present um, and even sometimes moments in the future to stand side by side by side Um so, yeah. I, uh, yeah, thank you for talking about that. I love that we're uh, in the current class that I'm co-teaching, the undergrads are reading Octavia Butler's Kindred. And so we've been having a lot of discussions about, yeah, the sort of present in the past and how memory mm -hmm. unfolds and how time works the way it does. And so, yeah, I think the way you've just articulated that, maybe some of them will listen to this interview. <laughs> it can help them out. <laughs> um, so another theme that sort of winds through the stories is water. Uh, for instance, in the opening of the, the story you, uh, you were watching from the sand, uh, which I quoted at the beginning of this interview, there are all these references to water, including exhaustion, the river. You write about Christopher Columbus landing on Hispaniola, which of course conjures the image of the sea. And you write about uh, a person as a body of water on which Ivy League colleges could be, quote, so heavy that they're not going to float that they could never keep themselves above the surface, end quote, of a person, but rather that they'd, they'd sink to the bottom. Uh, so water in this, in this story and in others, it seems very important. And I wonder if you could tell us a bit about how you're using water to create meaning in this story in particular, perhaps, or in the collection more generally. Yeah. Um, so let me just start off by saying that I have a deep and abiding fear of open water. Um, I think that, um, the ocean is very scary. Um, and I think that I'm, I'm just sort of like very kind of, um, fascinated by it as, um, sort of like this, this avenue of like terror ultimately. Um, but that's like mostly my own bias, um, this avenue of terror, but also this avenue of conveyance, um, and sort of like the, the way that, um, that transport kind of operates. I think that I was thinking about that, um, the way that kind of movement operates and the way that um, I, I kind of like wanted to mess with the, the notion of movement within a static body, which, um, which, which shows up in that opening um, excerpt of, of you were watching from the sand, the title story. Um, I think also I um, am also kind of fast. I've always been kind of fascinated by um, water as someone sort of like who, um, who comes from an Island and sort of like the, the kind of like communal, um, kind of like the communal um, Haitian and like the communal Haitian impression of, of the ocean um, and sort of like the, the way that it is, you know, sort of like this, um, this, um, this element of um, this very essential element of, of life because fishing is a very, very um, big 
like part of, of Haitian culture, um, but also sort of like this um, this like genuine element or this this genuine sort of like um, vector for for fear and for um, for mourning um, because of just um, the sheer amount of the sheer amount of um, of Haitian people who have um, drowned in the Caribbean Sea while trying to um, while trying to to get from um, Haiti to other to other countries or to other places. So I think that. Um, I just like I have a very very complicated relationship with um, with the open sea, um, but I there's also just something so um, there's also just been something so absolutely remarkable about it as well. I think that um, I've also been thinking about the ocean sea or like the the open sea um, and the ocean um, in terms of um, of Haitian mythology um, and in terms of voodoo mythology particularly. Um, because uh, there's um, sort of like this uh, this belief in um, in in voodoo that uh, when um, when you know per- a person dies, um, they kind of sort of uh, descend to the bottom of the ocean and they kind of await um, await their time to to sort of be taken to uh, to the other side. So I think that um, yeah. So I think that as I've I've gotten older, um, there's kind of like this bit. There's been this evolution in my thinking about about water um, from that point of terror, um, which I still have, um, to that point of uh, of sort of, um, of of really like sort of expansive and really um, distinct um, folklore and, and, and cultural um, significance. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. That's really, that's so fascinating. And, and it just makes me want to go back and reread the whole collection. <laughs> I feel like I'll have such a, such a deeper, sort of more complex understanding of those stories now. So thank you. Of course. Um, so I did want to talk about the the story titled uh, The Oldest Sensation is Anger because yes. I absolutely love this story. And it's so funny that you say that um, Toni Morrison is an inspiration because when I was reading this, I was thinking about my favorite book of all time, Sula, um, oh my God. because of this, like, I don't know, beautifully sort of complex and playful and I don't even know what else sort of relationship <laughs> between these two main characters. It's like so rich and fascinating. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about, about this story and how you sort of capture this really interesting and beautiful relationship between the two main characters? Yeah. Um, so I'm so excited to talk about this story. Um, I know that, so I, um, I feel like I shouldn't have a favorite like story or favorite quote unquote child, but like, this is my favorite child. Um, yeah. Um, and thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I'm, I'm so, so, um, kind of flattered and humbled by the, uh, the comparison to Sula. I love, love that novel. Um, but yeah, I think that with particularly the oldest sensation is anger. I was trying to write um, kind of my own version of the of the Haitian zombie myth. Um, I think that I um, I uh, it, it's not sort sort of um, Shay that title character who's supposed to be the um, supposed to be the quote unquote zombie. Um, it's never really kind of um, explicit that that is what she is. That her her transformations are kind of um, kind of shrouded in mystery. Um, but I think that I was sort of um, I was definitely thinking about the Haitian zombie myth as I was writing um, that story. And also um, particularly the way that with, um, 
with the Haitian zombie myth, the the one of the the biggest horrors of being turned into um, a zombie is that you actually do retain portions of your consciousness. I know that um, in a lot of sort of like um, Western iterations of the zombie, you com- you completely lose your your consciousness and you're you're kind of sort of like this mindless, hungry figure. Um, but in Haitian zombie um, zombie mythology, um, zombieology is that a word? I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you you do kind of return re- retain retain portions of your consciousness which is why that um, sort of like um, not sort of like being able to be in in complete control of yourself is so potently horrifying. Um, But I wanted to kind of like flip that on its head and have Shay be um, sort of like completely conscious, um, completely aware of her consciousness, um, but still kind of like, um, but still kind of like possess those um, sort of like those, those strange um, elements of like, of, of bodily transformation, Um, which um, I have to be honest, I am kind of like, I am kind of like borrowing from Western iterations of the zombie. Um, Shay is not like strictly a Haitian zombie, but um, by the the strictest definitions of the word. Um, But as I was writing the the character, I was, um, I was just very, very excited to think about um, the concept of, of the zombie so extensively. Um, And then also I, um, I feel like it's a a very big uh, literary, like literary thing to have these very like codependent (laughs) relationships. So I, like, I, I was, I was just like, oh, like I want to write a codependent relationship. So, um, so, so Shay and Nadia um, are are sort of my, uh, my, my iteration of that. Um, I was just sort of like fascinated by the ways that um, kind of obsession builds and builds between um, individuals. And it's not, um, it's not necessarily romantic, um, but there is sort of like that, that kind of like that fixation there. Um, and I've, I think that I, as I was writing them, I was constantly just like, how, how can I, um, how can I render this, uh, sort of connection between two people, um, and make it clear that it is sort of like as, um, as kind of, um, almost like it creepily intimate as they can get to one another. Um, so yeah, so I was very kind of fascinated by that. Um, and yeah, <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Creepily intimate. Yeah. It's, uh, it's just like, I think that's a great description. Oh, no wonder you're the one who wrote it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, it's just fantastic. So I want to go back to what you said sort of about like the Western zombie myth versus like the Haitian zombie myth, because there's this really fascinating point in this story. Obviously, like, yeah, she's not like eating bodies, right? But (laughs) have this like desire that you write about wanting, oh, sorry, not Shay, Nadia, um, the other character, she's described as wanting more bodies and hoping that each person that she's had this particular kind of sexual encounter with carry some part of her, you write, condensed inside of them. Um, and so I just want to read this quick quote. So she, Nadia has this desire to, co- you know, quote, come out of their abdomens, skin of their bellies, hiked up like skirts to release her, end quote. And yeah, so there is this kind of like creepy, like grotesqueness, this, this desire to stick with people to like accumulate bodies that does give like Nadia herself this sort of like maybe more Western zombie-ish feel um, now that I'm thinking about it. But um, I wonder if you could just sort of talk us through this because I think this is really fascinating, this desire for uh, this desire for more bodies, for sort of sticking on the skin of others and making our contacts with them with them last. Um, 
So I guess like if you could speak to that and then maybe, I know this is like maybe a meandering and not two big questions, but <laughs> just sort of like how bodies generally, how you're kind of thinking about them and working mm. with them in the stories. Yeah. Um, so I think that particularly with the, with the section that you just read, um, it, it kind of makes me, it kind of kind of like, like brings me to the headspace that I, I was in when I wrote Nadia as a character. Um, and the fact is that she is, I think like the loneliest character I've ever written, um, which is uh, saying a lot because a lot of my characters are very lonely. Um, but yeah, so so I wanted to sort of like see, um, I think that her, her kind of like desire to kind of um, like stick to people um, once, once they, once they have left her um, was me kind of, kind of to kind of trying to kind of literalize and act literalize and actualize um, her lonely, her loneliness on the page. Um, this like, just like this, like this ache, this, like this desire to, to constantly be um, sort of like um, on the minds or like in, within the considerations of um, pretty much anyone Um or anyone that she that she has been um, in contact with, um, and I, I I think that I as I was writing, um, yeah, I, I think that as I was sort of like thinking of, of this desire of hers to be um, to be sort of like on on other people's minds, um, I was I was sort of like, oh, um, maybe it's not enough to have her um, desire that you know people think about her. Maybe it's maybe I, I need to co- kind of like go further um, with this, and I think that. Um, I think that sort of like speaking more broadly, um, like particularly with, like with bodies and the human body, um, the body is just like such a, a such a really really like always like effective and potent way of um, of making so many um, sort of like um, like more watery emotional um, impulses feel more solid and real. Um, so I think that that is um, sort of um, where I, I immediately my instinct immediately told me to to go. Um, and I think that's 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 true too of um, of uh, Lee in Belly, um, which is another story in the collection, and um, who and the the character who creates Lee from from the mud is also a very lonely character. Um, but the the sort of um, the sort of way that Lee is essentially in a cat in Lee is um, you know. Lee is definitely their their own character and possesses their own consciousness, but Lee is also essentially um, a capturing and an encapsulation of um, of that title character's loneliness as well. Um, so I think that um, particularly with bodies, I think that I, I have a very kind of speculative thinking um, with them and the way that, um, again, um, the emotional is kind of allowed to be um, kind of solidified and cemented um, in things that we can touch and, and actually feel. Yeah, it feels like when you say that this is like, yeah, how you're thinking about this sort of speculatively, that totally makes sense. I think with something that you said at the beginning of the interview, which I thought was really great, which is that like the speculative sort of demands that reality accommodate, I think is the word that you use, right? Like what's happening in Mm -hmm. the story. Um, And yeah, so I think that's what sort of Nadia is doing here as well is like demanding a kind of like accommodation for a desire that doesn't really necessarily like work in reality right but <laughs> yeah um, but maybe it does a little bit in this story with the <laughs> relationship that she has with Shay um so the last question that I wanted to ask you about uh like a specific story was um thinking about the story Winwood, which is I think is so lovely and um it has definitely like these these explicit queer themes and characters but th- that happens also that's existing in other stories sometimes explicitly sometimes maybe more implicitly 
Um, but in Winwood, we've got this protagonist who's a young queer man or a teenager who is constantly finding that when people look at him, they are seeing someone else that they have some desire, good or bad, to see. So I'm wondering, can you talk a little bit about the relationship of this character to his boyfriend, Nico, in comparison to perhaps like his relationship with his family members and and their sort of, I don't know, you like misuse of his of his <laughs> face or his desires, you know, et cetera. Yeah, um, so I think that I've been thinking a lot about um, queerness within the Haitian community as, um, you know, these like... Uh, these very disturbing pieces of, um, of legislation have been cropping up around um, specifically targeting trans people. Um, and then I've also been thinking about, a lot about um, Asato Saint, who, um, who was, um, you know, obviously this very queer, like this very iconic queer um, Haitian figure in um, particularly in the New York scene. Um, I think that I've been sort of thinking about how, um, how essential and how sort of like life-saving it is for particularly queer Haitians to be able to kind of um, flicker in and out of sight. Um, it's absolutely crucial that they have control over, you know, sort of like who they're visible to and who they're invisible to. Um, and sort of like the, um, the, the inability to control that um, can, can lead to, can be fatal, can lead to their, to their death, to their, to their murders. Um, and I, I was thinking about that flickering in and out of sight, but I kind of wanted to think about um, sort of what if um, the the what if the the queerness wasn't sort of um, what if I could kind of like separate. Um, so like what if the what if the the, the queerness wasn't um, sort of like in in um, an avenue for. Uh, for the death of that of that queer person who is unable to control um, who they're visible and invisible to, um, what if the kind of like the queerness was was the refuge, um, which is the reason why I kind of have um, those two characters at the end of um, of the story. Um, I have my title character and I have um, I have Nico um, kind of like in that um, sort of moment of intimacy in Nico's room. Um, but I, I sort of wanted to see um, if I could kind of um, if I can turn that flickering into um, something that is um, something that that something that did not result in um, sort of like the. Um, the death or the sort of like the mutilation of a, of a queer person because of because of the because specifically of the queerness because of their inability um, to, to control the um, who they're they're visible or invisible to um, and then kind of and then relatedly I wanted to kind of um, have fun with the notion of um, of being um, kind of like uh, being visible or invisible to, to people um, in ways that you um, kind of like entirely cannot control at all, kind of like being this kind of blank slate for a lot of people. Um, I thought that that was so, um, I thought that was so fascinating. Fascinating. I think I have a, I have a reference to, um, to Nicolas Cage in that story. Yes, the, the, the no face man. Yeah. Um, so I was, I was also thinking about that, um, as well, but, um, yeah, I, I know that I said that, um, that, uh, the oldest sensation is anger is, is my, um, my favorite child, but I think that Winwood is definitely my Miami baby. Yeah. <laughs> I really love that story. <laughs> well, I'm really glad that we got the chance to talk about both of them. And I so appreciate <laughs> you taking the time to talk with me today. 
So my final question is, when can people buy your book and where from? Yes. Um, so my collection will be published on September 19th um, of this year, 2023. Um, and it can be purchased on um, redhen.org. Um, and ooh, let me pull up the list because I always forget. I'm so sorry. Um so, yes, it can be purchased on redhen.org, um, bookshop.org, indiebound.org, um, barnesandnoble.com, and amazon.com. And it's actually already available for pre-order. Awesome. All right. Well, listeners, you need to go pre-order this wonderful book. <laughs> and um, thank you again, Juliana, for talking with me today. Yes, thank you so much for having me. This was lovely.